If you have your Bibles open there to Colossians chapter 1. This week I was reading about a gentleman named Keelan, I think that's how you say his name, Clark. He was a World War II fighter who was shot down over Germany in 1944. And unfortunately, when he parachuted out of his plane, he landed in the arms of German soldiers who then took him to a death camp, which is where he spent the next 20 months of his life before he was freed. And this is how the article described Mr. Clark. Throughout his time as a POW, Clark never lost hope. I was always the cheerleader for the other guys. I would tell them, we will make it back to our families. We will make it back to our families. At one point, the strong-willed Clark helped a fellow POW fashion a scale model of an imagined restaurant from cardboard. And the soldier promised to build the restaurant when he returned to America. Though Clark could not say whether the restaurant came to fruition, all the men did make it back to their families. Motivated through their hunger, sickness, and loneliness by Clark's remarkable reservoir of hope. They were motivated through hunger, sickness, and loneliness because one man had this reservoir of hope. That people would dip into and that would cause them to have hope in this very bleak circumstance. And hope, as you know, is a very powerful motivator. If you ever read these stories about men who are captured or men and women who are captured and put in these kinds of camps, the people who didn't make it were certainly people who lost hope. And so here... Uh, Clark is a man who has great hope and his hope spills over into other people and gives them hope to continue to move forward. And hope is the center of our text here. You see it in verse five, five, the hope laid up for them in heaven. This this hope that these disciples have in Colossae, it, it, it totally reorients their world. It it gives them an attitude. It causes them to have a particular action that all is shaped by hope. And so hope has this massive gravitational effect. It it completely reorients whether you have good days or bad days. The fact that you have a hope laid up for you in heaven and you have a good day. Let's say you have a great day. You're you're at a wedding maybe. Maybe you're at a reunion. You're having a, a, a meal with an old friend. And and in these places, you've been in these places, joy is exaggerated. Whatever was good that you're remembering with your friends, it just gets expanded out. It was better, better now as we tell the story. And all the painful parts have lost their sting. That's a great moment. That's a great meal. That's a great reunion with your old friends. Joy is exaggerated. Pain is minimized. And as great as this moment is, you know that your hope doesn't last And your hope isn't in this particular moment. You have a hope beyond this particular moment. This moment is just a little taste. 
It's like a little appetizer. It's a little slice of something that you say, this is something like what eternity with the Lord is going to be, be like. Joy is going to be exaggerated and all the sting that came with pain is going to be removed. And so, so hope reorients you when you have good days. Hope reorients you when you have bad days. You mourn, you are bewildered, you're lonely, you're angry. Yet you, you know you have a hope. You're just passing through. At the moment of your journey, it may be all uphill at, right, at this particular point. But you know your current condition is not your final destination. And so you have a hope. It hope the hope propels you forward. One commentator talking about this hope, he says this, the hope of heaven is the totality of blessing waiting for the Christian in the life to come. The totality of blessing waiting for the Christian in the life to come. You, you have this massive hope that you really have put your eyes on, you've set your sights on. So no matter how your days are working out right now, your current condition isn't your final destination. And you know you have a final destination and you put your hope in that final destination and it propels you forward in these days. The hope laid up for you in heaven, verse 5, Paul talks about in a different way in chapter 1, verse 27. He says it this, this way, the hope of glory. Same thing. The hope laid up for you in heaven or the hope of glory. This is what the, the disciples in Colossae have their eyes, their eyes focused on. And listen to some parallel verses, verses by the Apostle Paul, Romans eight eighteen. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with. The glory that will be revealed in us. Second Corinthians 4. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Colossians chapter 3 verse 4. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So there's something glorious, there's something hopeful, there's, there's something laid up for us ahead, and we see it, and it helps move us through these particular days. Glory can mean weight or substance. So in heaven, and this is good news, you're going to gain weight. You're, you're going you're to gain substance. It's like you're, you're, you're uh, an outline or you're a shadow or you're hollow compared to this glory that's going to be revealed in you. You're going to gain real substance, real meat when you get to heaven. Glory is this, this hope, this hope of perfection, greatness, worth, beauty, brilliance, majesty, magnificence. In, in Jesus's, one of Jesus' last prayers, John 17, it's called the High Priestly Prayer. And after this, he moves into uh, the Garden of Gethsemane and towards the cross. And he has this long prayer for his disciples and also for us. And this is what he says in this prayer. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Father, I'm, I'm coming back for glory. The glory that we used to share together 
that now in this present state here on earth has been hidden. It's been minimized in some way. I, God, I'm coming for that glory. I'm going to come and we're going to be in that spot. And, and that glory that we had together, I'm going to come back and reclaim it. And then he says this, Father, my prayer is also for those who will believe in me. The glory that you have given to me, listen, I'm giving to them. God, I'm coming for that glory. All of your attributes poured into me, pouring out of me. I'm coming for that glory and I'm bringing people with me. And I want you to pour that glory into them. And so you pour like a waterfall all these great attributes that makes them substantial, that makes them solid, and will pour out of them for eternity. That's the glory. That's the hope. That's the thing that's ahead that motivates us in the difficult days today. That's the hope that's laid up for us in heaven. That's the hope of glory. C.S. Lewis writes this, The dullest... The dullest, most uninteresting person. This may be helpful to somebody in here. The dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to today may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. The dullest, most uninteresting human being who is a believer, who one day will stand in this glory, will be poured into like a waterfall, and will be pouring out of them perfection and beauty and magnificence. If you saw them in that shape today, you would think, I've got to bow down and worship this person. That's the hope that we have. God's glory poured into us, pouring out of us in this really unbelievable way. This glory changes, it reorients, it shapes the way we live our lives today. It's hard for me to describe. It's like trying to describe beauty. It's just difficult. If you say, well, can you describe a basketball? Yeah, it's about this big, it's round, and you throw it into a hoop. But how do you describe glory? How do you describe hope? How do you describe beauty? These are difficult concepts to describe. Here's what I was thinking about in trying to describe it. If I said to you this morning, when you exit the building, you will be given $10 billion. When you ex- just in just a few minutes, when you exit, you're going to be given $10 billion. So when the offering plate goes by here between now and then, I'd like for you to write a check or empty out your wallet of everything you have. Would you be willing to do that? Well, yes, I would. With joy, I would. No problem. First of all, I don't have that much in my wallet and checkbook. But secondly, compared to the nearness of this $10 billion, I would do it with joy. It would be no problem. Because that thing that's outside is so big, it has such a massive gravitational effect that it would be no problem for me to live in this light and momentary problem of giving away my money right now because of this hope, this treasure that's laid up for me in heaven. So for the disciples in Colossae, This hope that's been laid up for them in heaven is so massive, it's so near, that it's reoriented their life. And we can see that hope here is the the center of the text. And the way I picture this hope 
in my mind is this hope is like the trunk of a tree in the text. The hope is at the center. It's this trunk of the tree. And the hope is grounded in something. And from this trunk springs something. So that's what we're going to look at. What, what is this hope grounded in? And then this hope causes something to spring forward. What are those two things? First of all, it's grounded in the gospel. Because of the hope, verse 5, laid up for you in heaven... Of this you have heard. You heard it from Epaphras. He was the guy that we talked about last week. You have, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Or it, back down in verse 7, the grace of God in truth. So the, you've heard the word of truth, which is the gospel. You've heard the grace of God in truth. So the Apostle Paul came to Ephesus. We talked about this last week. In his congregation is a man from Colossae, this near nearby city. And he hears the Apostle Paul preach the gospel. And he's changed by it. And he goes back to his hometown. And then he preaches the gospel to these people that now Paul is writing to. And we're not sure exactly what Paul might have said. But let's just imagine that when he's preaching the gospel, when Epaphras goes back to his hometown and he's preaching the gospel, he says something like this. In their sermon, they stand up and say, you know, mankind knows that there's a God and that we don't glorify God. In fact, our thinking, our hearts are dark, Romans 1. None of us is righteous, not not even one. There's nobody who does good, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3. And all the wages of this sin is death, physical death, spiritual separation from God, Romans 6. But God, this is the turning point, this is the news, this is the good, the good news. But God, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Jesus took our place. Jesus took our penalty. Jesus set us free from the law of sin and death. And God demonstrated his love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Jesus, the perfect son of God, died for us. Romans 5. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Romans 8. Now listen. If you say Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. In fact, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10. And neither death or life, angels or demons, the present or the future, no height, no death, nothing in all of creation can possibly separate those who trust in the Lord from the love of God forever. Amen. That's something, Romans 8. That's something like the gospel that they preached. And when Paul stood up and preached that in Ephesus, and when, Paul, and when and Epaphras heard it, and he preached it back to Colossae, people said, that's the word of truth. That's real. Now imagine all the other kind of noise that could have been in their lives. The temple of Artemis, this pagan fertility goddess, Stood at the center of the city. It wasn't just a, a, a religious place. It was a banking place. It was a sexual place. So spirituality, wealth, sexuality all wrapped up. And one man comes in to say, let me tell you what the truth is. The truth from God Almighty. And when that truth 
penetrated their hearts. That gospel was the ground that when they said, now that I heard that, I have hope. I have hope. That's the ground of these two things now that spring forth from their hope. Verses 4 and 5. Let's go back to verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard, these are the two things, we heard of your faith. So from hope springs faith in Jesus Christ. And we heard of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope or springing from your hope, some of your versions may say. So we've got these three things. They're very familiar, especially if you remember the passage from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is? Well, it's love for Paul in 1 Corinthians. But what is it here? Hope. So he's got these three things, these three try, these three things that make the stool. Faith, hope, and love. And for Paul here, hope is at the center, and you have this hope that comes out of the gospel. And now that I have this hope, two things spring out of this if you're a disciple of Christ. And you can look at yourself and ask yourself, is, is my hope really grounded in the gospel? Do I have a hope that's outside of myself that, that helps me move through my days and does Something spring forth in my life as a disciple, faith and love, faith, an absolute commitment to Jesus Christ. They remember the gospel, they know they have this hope, and so they come back and they hear it again on a Sunday morning and they say, yes, that's the truth. My mind got distracted. I, I started going after something else. But no, that's the truth. That's, that's the thing I'm holding on to. That's, that's what I, I'm absolutely committed to. John Patton was a pretty well-known missionary. And as he goes to these foreign lands, he got to try to translate the, the concepts of the Bible. And he was trying to, to, to relate faith or belief in another language. And the phrase that he used was, lean your whole weight on. So is all your weight on the gospel? Or is it just sort of one foot on, one foot off? Or are you just kind of leaning, but just in case it gives way, well, you mean you can write yourself. See, Patton is trying to say, when you, when you trust in this truth, when you believe in this truth, when you have this hope, all of your weight is on this. If it gives way, you're done. Paul knows that this young church planted by Epaphras is living under this this dark shadow cast from Ephesus by the temple of Artemis into these surrounding suburb cities. And they live in a domain of darkness, spiritual darkness. And he he knows he's trying to come in and say, guys, men and women, church in, in Colossae, I have heard of your faith. You're, you're living in a, in, a, in a place that's got a great dark shadow of it. And I know that you have this faith that you're holding on to. And he's trying to encourage them. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, which we'll get to, there's these agitators that now have come inside the church that have fine-sounding arguments against the gospel. I know you're living in this shadow. I know you're hearing these fine-sounding arguments. And I know that you have this faith. And Paul comes in and says, I know you've heard about the truth of the gospel. You've put your whole weight onto Jesus. Faith 
an absolute commitment to Christ, even if everything else gives way. That's one mark of a disciple. It comes from, grounded in the gospel, from hope. The well-known story of Jesus with his disciples. He's done some teaching in Capernaum, and he says to the guys, hey, let's go to the other side. So they all get in this boat. They get halfway across the water. And what happens? Great storm out of nowhere comes. And you've got some professional fishermen on there. They're trying to figure out, let's, get, let's try to find the nearest shore line. Let's get to it. They can't get to it. They feel like their life is in danger. Perhaps their life really was in danger. And they've tried everything they can, and they can't seem to get any further. They feel like they're just about ready to be swamped, and Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. And so sort of, maybe they were protecting Jesus. Guys, look, he's been, ta- he's been teaching us, let's at least get the boat to the shoreline. I mean, I don't know what was happening, but finally there was like, Jesus, wake up. And what do they say? Don't you care about us? Don't you care if we drown? Aren't we the center of your universe? I mean, you, you've said that, have you not? Hey, I'm the center of the universe, the center of the universe is going down, Jesus. Don't you care about that? And what does he say? This is really a disturbing phrase. Where is your faith? See, guys, you, you 12 men, you're going to launch a global mission. And you are going to have undefeatable waves come over your life like being crucified upside down. Like being beheaded. And I want to know, right at that moment, are you going to have all of your weight on me or are you going to have some of your weight on your life? Is all of your weight on the life and the truth of Jesus Christ, or is some of your weight there, and then some of your weight's on, well, my life. When you really know the gospel, you have hope. And from that hope springs a rock-solid faith that even when the waves come over and you cannot defeat them, you say... I'm still going to hold on to Jesus. From this hope springs a faith, a faith that moves upward. Second thing, up from this hope springs love, love for the saints. It's not just an an upward expression from hope. It's also an outward expression. I don't just have hope in, uh, or I just don't just have hope in Jesus. This hope in Jesus also uh, moves horizontally. Now I have a hope or a love for those people that are around me who are saints, those who are Christians. I was reading in a commentary on this particular phrase, and they said this, and I just started wrestling. I sort of put it away, and then I came back to it, and I started wrestling with this comment by this scholar, Douglas Moo. And I want you to wrestle with it. So here's what he said. In speaking of all the saints, the love for all the saints, Paul means those fellow Christians with whom the Colossians have relationships, members of their own church. 
The focus is not extensive, meaning every Christian everywhere, but intensive, meaning they love the Christians in their own congregation. You see what he's saying? He's he's, he's saying, when Paul's saying, I've heard of your faith and I've heard of your love, he means I've heard about your love for each other in your congregation. Not a generic love for every Christian everywhere, but a but a specific love. You've really demonstrated an incredible love to each other. It's easy to love saints in the past. Who doesn't love Peter or Paul? Who doesn't love Luther or Calvin or Wesley, Aquinas or Augustine? Because you go back and you just pick out the things that you love. Oh, I love that guy, but you never met him. It's easy to love Christians in other communities or in other countries that you're never going to be a part of. I heard about the Christians in India, or I heard about the Christians in China, or I heard about the Christians in wherever, and I just love those guys. But you don't know any of them. You see, the question is, can you love the ones that you know? And for Colossae, they had loved each other well, so well that Paul had heard about it. It's easy to romanticize the, that kind of love. And Paul's saying, no, I've seen it because you've had to display it to the person in the pew right next to you. C.S. Lewis, I think I used this as an illustration a couple of months ago. It was so helpful in his letters called the Screwtape Letters. This man has become a Christian. And this uh, demon who's sort of terrorizing this man has been given this instruction. Well, he's became a Christian, but just send him to church because that'll really square him up. And when he gets to church, when he goes inside, this is what he says. Help him see the local grocer, grocer with, with the rather oily expression on his face. You see what he's doing? When he gets inside, make sure he doesn't look at look to or look forward to Jesus. Make sure he looks at the, the person next to him who's got an oily expression. What a great word. What's an oily expression? And when he gets to his pew and he looks around, help him see just that selection of his neighbors whom he has been avoiding. Make sure you point out the people that he's been avoiding previously to this point. You want to lean pretty heavy on those neighbors, make his mind bounce between the expression like the body of Christ and then the actual faces in the pew in the pew. It matters very little what kind of people that are in the next pew, provided any of those neighbors, listen, sing out of tune, have boots that squeak, double chin or odd clothes. You see, get them focused on the double chin, odd clothes, squeaky boots, out of tune guy. And he'll be so consumed by that, he won't be looking at Jesus anymore. And he won't be able to love that person. And you can whittle down his hope. And you can whittle away the gospel. Because they can't really love the person in the pew. Can you love the people around you? Not the generic Christians over there. Or the Christians in history, but the people in this room. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this in a book called Life Together. 
countless times a whole Christian community has been broken down because of a wish dream. Countless times Christian communities, churches, have been broken down because people in those churches have what he calls a wish dream. A wish dream is a very definite idea of what Christian community should be. Every human wish dream injected into the actual Christian community is a hindrance to the genuine community. He who loves his dream of community more than the actual Christian community becomes a destroyer. He who loves his wish dream of community more than the people that are actually in the community, they become a destroyer. Such a powerful word. If you're around college students, or if you're just hip like me, I mean, either way, the the buzzword in the college Christian circle is community. Don't you hear it? You hear it all the time, do you not? They have great community. I'm looking for community. That's that word. If you took that word and the word awesome out, you'd have nothing to say if you're a college, Christian college student. Sorry, I'm sorry. Please come back next week. But, but you see, they're looking for community. It's a good thing to look for. It's a good thing to want. But Bonhoeffer and Lewis would say, look around. This is the community. It's not a wish dream. It's the person with an oily expression. It's the person who sings out of tune. It's the person with a double chin. It's the person with the squeaky boots. That's the community. This is it. Can you love these people right here? That's the question. If you have a hope that springs from the gospel, then you're going to know, Paul, he's got squeaky shoes, he's got a double chin, he sings out of tune. But he's not there yet. He hasn't arrived. So because I know I haven't arrived and he's trying to love me, I'm going to try to love him back. See, if you understand the gospel, you have a hope. And from that hope, spring these things of faith in God that's unshakable and a love for these people. So it's a perfect, perfect transition to the communion table. Because maybe your, your faith in the Lord needs to be strengthened. You come forward and say, yes, God, I, I was slipping away. And now I want to I rem- be reminded I'm holding on to you. You are my life. Not my life. You're my life. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's Christ who lives in me. All of my weight is on him. And plus love. You're not coming just to have a meal with Jesus. You're having a meal around a table. So you're going to walk next to somebody as you come up. Maybe they have an oily expression. Maybe they have squeaky boots. Maybe they have a double chin. If you have hope in Jesus, you can love, you can love that person. 